Our reading today will be from Matthew chapter 21. We'll start from verse 1 and read through chapter 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord that is preached to you. You may be seated, and let's pray together as we come to the word of the Lord. Our God and our Father, we give you such praise this week as we come to reflect upon, to remember, to rejoice in, and to celebrate everything that Jesus did during that final week of his life, all that he endured, all that he experienced, all that he laid down and all that he poured out in order to glorify you and in order to honor you and in order to redeem us. Father, we pray as we turn our attention to these verses in the Gospel of Matthew and focus on how Jesus cleansed this temple that you will use your word, Father, to continue to cleanse us, to wash us, to purify us, for we are the temple of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. And so we ask, Lord, that your words would be living and active in our lives, that they would pierce us like the double-edged sword that they are, that they would expose anything in us that needs to change, and that you would continue the work of transforming us by the renewing of our minds. We pray all of these things today for the sake of your glory and with grateful hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So this year, as we come to the beginning of Passion Week, 
I wanted to do a, uh, something a little different. I wanted to focus a little differently with you this year, not specifically on the triumphal entry so much at the beginning of the week. We've, we've reflected on that event oftentimes in the past on this day. This year, I thought, let's begin focusing on what happened during the rest of the week as we march towards Good Friday. And, and today, what I'd like to do is to focus on what Jesus did the day after the triumphal entry, what he was doing on Tuesday as he had come into Jerusalem and was heading towards the great culmination of his life and his ministry on this earth, which we're going to celebrate on Good Friday. On Monday, now, now some of you will remember that I take the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on the year where that event actually happened in history. I take that entry into Jerusalem to have actually happened on that Monday of the final week of his life as he came riding into the city on the back of that donkey and the crowd shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That word, Hosanna, is the Greek form of an ancient Hebrew word that has two kinds of meanings, kind of like two sides of the same coin. On the first side, Hosanna means basically help. It means, Lord, I need you. And then on the other side, the word Hosanna means basically, Lord, thank you for helping me. I give you praise for helping me. And so whenever you hear that word Hosanna, that's what you should, that's what you should think of. Lord, help, I need you. And Lord, thank you. I praise you for doing and for being everything that I'll ever need. And that's what the worshipers in Jerusalem were crying out to Jesus when he rode into the city on the back of a donkey just days before he would be crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We celebrate it on Sunday, like today, before the Sunday before Easter each year. Many people think that that actually occurred on a Sunday. I believe Jesus' triumphal entry was actually on Monday during the time when the Sadducees and the temple officials would have begun inspecting and approving all of the Paschal lambs that Jesus would have been sacrificing later in the week for their Passover meals. But instead of the crowds in Jerusalem attending to all of that business, paying attention to all of that business, all of the thousands and thousands of people, probably around two million people in Jerusalem that day, were instead focused on Jesus, who came into Jerusalem proclaiming himself to be the great king, but also humbly and mounted on the full of a donkey because he wasn't just the ultimate king, he was also one who would pour himself out as the ultimate paschal lamb, the true lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. But here now, look at verses 12 through 16 with me of Matthew 21. The narrative is recording the next day, Tuesday of Passion Week, and Matthew is recounting the story of Jesus cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. So on Monday, Jesus presented himself as the humble but ultimate king. On Tuesday, Jesus exerts his divine kingly authority. And and this time, it's not in an act of humble, self-abasing sacrifice. This time, Jesus isn't taking condemnation upon himself. He's exercising condemnation in the temple against the wicked Sadducees and temple officials and all the money changers in there. 
On Monday, he had presented himself as the, the great eternal sacrificial lamb who would be slain once, and as we'll see, only once to take away our sins. But on Tuesday, he purged the earthly temple in Jerusalem of all of the hypocrisy and all of the greed and all of the exploitation and self-righteousness that had corrupted it and polluted the sacrifices that were being made there. And then see what happens on Friday when he goes to the cross and, and offers himself as the ultimate sacrifice. What happens on Friday is that Jesus renders all of those other sacrifices and that entire earthly system and the, the temple itself in Jerusalem, he renders it all pointless and obsolete forever by making that one final all-sufficient sacrifice of himself. So let's look here today at Matthew's words and at what Jesus did on Tuesday of his final week on this earth and why he did it. Verse 12 of Matthew 21 very simply says, Jesus entered the temple. So again, this is Tuesday. The day before, Monday, was when the people had thrown down palm branches in front of him and hailed him as the son of David, the, the, the coming Messiah King, come to save Israel. But see, they didn't really have a concept of the kind of salvation that he had come to bring. They wanted him to save them from the Romans. They wanted him to save them from earthly political oppression and tyranny. They wanted him to overthrow the, the governmental system that they were under the thumb of, but he came to overthrow something else entirely. They wanted him to establish the nation of Israel as the dominant world kingdom on this earth, but Jesus had come to establish a kingdom that is not of this world. They wanted Jesus to come and deal with worldly, social, political, military, economic issues. But ultimately, Jesus didn't come to deal with those issues. And it's easy for us, right, to get so caught up and so focused on those kinds of things that are going on all around us in our world, to get so preoccupied with things like money and saving for the future on this earth and to get wrapped up in all the political concerns of this world that, that instinctively we kind of feel like these are the things that matter the most. These are the things that, that, that capture our attention the most. This is what we get worried about in this world the most and think about the most and talk about the most and spend most of our time wondering about and fussing about and looking out on the TV and trying to do something to change it all. But, but here's the difference with Jesus. He wasn't concerned with those things, right? You remember even when he was a kid, he was 12 years old. And you remember that he had come with his parents to the temple for Passover, and you remember what happened? After the Passover, mom and dad headed home. They were going back to Nazareth. They were going back to work. They were going back to the family business. They were going back to the everyday cares of this world, but Jesus didn't go with them. Jesus stayed in the temple. Jesus couldn't get enough of the temple. Jesus wanted to be in the place where the worship of God was central when he was 12 years old. And now, all the way at the other end of his life, it's the temple again where Jesus wants to be. 
See, if he, if he went where the people wanted him to go, if he was consumed with the priorities that the people had for him, if he, was, if he was taken up with all the cares and the things of this world, like the political and social and economic concerns that consumed them, then he probably would have gone somewhere else on this day, right? If it was all about establishing some kind of an earthly power, maybe he would have gone to Pilate's house. Maybe he would have gone to the Antonia Fortress where, where the Roman garrison was stationed. Maybe he would have gone to Herod's palace. Maybe he would have gone to Rome. Maybe that's where he would have gone to cause some kind of upheaval and raise his voice and take action against the tyranny and the oppression and the social injustices of the world. But that's not where he went. That's not the kind of thing he did. In his last days, in order to fulfill his ultimate mission on the earth, Jesus went to the temple. Because his focus and the preoccupation of his mind and his heart was not on the, on the earthly concerns of this world, but on the glory and the honor of God. Now, some of you may be reading a different translation than I am. Some of your translations in verse 12 there, depending on, um, depending on whatever translation you've got with you, some translations say in verse 12 that Jesus went into the temple of God. Not just the temple, but the temple of God. And this is just one of those verses where there's what we call a, a variant, a textual variant. So, see, there were something like there's like more than 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that we have. They're ancient copies of what was originally written. We don't have any of the documents that were actually originally written. We don't have the we don't have the document that Matthew actually originally wrote, but we've got tons and tons of copies of all of the books of the Bible. And most of the time, there's such a great preponderance of agreement in the copies that we have that it's easy to know what the original document said. But once in a while, there's some differences, and they're minor differences. They're variants among the manuscripts. None of them make big theological or historical differences. They're, they're mostly just minor details like, like, like repeating a certain phrase or leaving certain descriptions out, things like that. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 21, that is one of those places. Sorry, chapter 21, verse 12 is one of those places where there are some very, very old, very, very good, very reliable ancient manuscripts that don't just say that he went into the temple. It says that he went into the temple of God. And then there are other manuscripts that are also good and reliable that just say the temple. They leave out the phrase of God. And it really doesn't ultimately make much of a difference, see, because, of course, it was the temple of God. This is the temple where God was worshipped. This is where God had dwelt in the Old Testament. This is what everyone understood it to be, whether it's called the temple of God or just the temple. doesn't matter. But if Matthew really did originally call it the temple of God in verse 12, then it's only the second place he called it that. The other one would be in chapter 26. And it would only be the fifth place in the entire New Testament where it's called the temple of God, out of about 115 places where the temple is talked about. I think that's probably why some manuscripts left it out and just say temple, because the whole phrase temple of God is, is so rare. But it's not unheard of. There are four places in the New Testament where it's undoubtedly used. 
And one of them is in Matthew 26. And I actually think that the, that the rareness of referring to the temple as the temple of God may, may be exactly why we should assume that that's exactly what Matthew meant to say. I think he meant to highlight the fact that this temple was God's temple. I think Matthew wanted to remind his readers that this temple was the place where the worship of the Most High and Holy God was at least supposed to be taking place because in the very next verse, he goes on to describe all of the absolute and utter ungodliness of what was actually going on there. Matthew wants to paint a contrast here. The temple of the one true glorious God of all creation was being defiled. It was being polluted. It was being corrupted. It was being desecrated with godless greed and dishonest worldly hypocrisy and in fact blasphemous false religion. So Jesus entered the temple of God and when he did... He overturned the tables, it says, of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, you need to picture what's going on here. You need to see in your mind's eye what Jesus saw when he walked into the temple on Tuesday. The temple was the absolute center of everything in Jerusalem, and especially at this time of the year. This was their big time of the year, every single year, the time of Passover. Passover is, of course, that annual feast of the Jews where they commemorate the Exodus, right? God's deliverance and salvation of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt way back in Moses' day in the book of Exodus. And a central part of that great week-long feast of Passover was that every family that came from all around Jerusalem or all around Israel, they would all come to Jerusalem in order to sacrifice a lamb, in order to remember and commemorate the lambs that were sacrificed in the Exodus, right? Where God had them paint over the doorposts of their house the blood of a lamb, so that when the angel of the Lord came to destroy the Egyptians, he'd pass over the homes of his people where the blood of the lamb was covering them. And that's such an obviously great picture of what Jesus is doing this week. And all of that, it's a divine foreshadowing, right? Of what Jesus came and fulfilled on the Passover when he died, the true lamb of God, slaughtered on the cross so that we could be covered by his blood. So, remember what Luke said, that on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was glorified, he was speaking to Moses and Elijah, and they were talking about Jesus going to Jerusalem in order to accomplish the word they use, the exodus, his exodus. So this is exactly what they meant, Jesus is the greater exodus. Jesus is the great Passover. Jesus is the true lamb. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. That's what, that's what all of this is pointing to. So at the feast of the Passover, everybody was there. The whole nation was at hand. People came from all over Israel. They traveled far and wide. They made pilgrimage from everywhere every year in order to come to Jerusalem for Passover. At this time of year, the number of people in Jerusalem swelled the population of the city swelled four to five times 
the normal population. Masses of people were there, right? Uh, historians tell us probably as many as two million people packing the streets and camped out all over the hillsides. So crowds milling around everywhere. It was kind of chaotic everywhere in Jerusalem and especially in the temple. And so it's into this, this kind of throng that Jesus enters in through the main gates of the temple into what is known as the courts of the Gentiles, which is sort of a big, massive courtyard that ringed the whole temple complex. And it's called the court of the Gentiles because it was the one place inside the temple complex that Gentiles were allowed to come. The more inner areas were places where only Israelites could go. So inside the court of the Gentiles, past that was the women's court where Jewish women could go. They could get a little further than the Gentiles could. And then inside that was the court of Israel. And women couldn't go in there. Only the men of Israel could go in there. And inside that was the altar and the temple itself where only the priests could go. And inside the temple was the Holy of Holies where only the high priest who at this time, his name was Annas in Jesus' day. Only he could go in the Holy of Holies. So see, the further in you went, the more exclusive it got, right? Which meant that the outer courts, the court of the Gentiles, that was a place where anyone could be. Jews and Gentiles could be there. Men and women could be there. Little children could be there. Sick people could be there. Crippled people could be there. Blind people could be there. And they all were there. The court of the Gentiles was packed at Passover time, not only because it was this openly public area, but also because the high priest, Annas, had, had turned it into a bazaar. It was, that's what they actually called it, the bazaar of Annas, like a massive marketplace. And what they sold in this marketplace at Passover time were the animals that were required for the Passover sacrifice. Everybody had to bring an animal, usually bring a lamb. But if you were too poor to own or to buy a lamb, then the book of Leviticus said that you could bring a bird instead of a pigeon or a turtle dove. But the thing was this. The animal that you brought, whatever it was, it had to be clean, ceremonial clean. It had to be free of diseases. It couldn't be impure or imperfect. It couldn't have any broken bones. It had to be free of any kind of gross defects. And the priests... And the temple workers who worked for the high priest and the Sadducees, they were the ones who inspected all of the animals to make sure that they were worthy and clean enough and free of defects. And if your animal wasn't found to be worthy, or if you didn't have an animal of your own to bring, then you could buy one there in the massive marketplace that's called the Bazaar of Annas that was set up all over the court of the Gentiles. And you can guess how all of that went, right? How do things go when there's a lot of government oversight? It didn't work out too well for the people. Hardly anyone's animal ever passed inspection. And they all ended up having to buy more expensive animals from the governing authorities. Kind of sounds familiar, right? So by now, a lot of people had just given up on bringing their own animal because they knew it wouldn't pass inspection. Even a bird, if they brought a bird and it was a perfect bird, you know how birds have 
hollow wings so that they can fly, so that they don't weigh so much, and so their wings are brittle and fragile. So the, you know, the temple worker would, would hold up the bird to inspect it, and he's got his thumb on this side, and snap, oop, broke a bone. It's, it's imperfect. You have to buy a new bird, right? This is, this is the kind of thing that went on all the time. Their system was even more corrupt than our system, if you can imagine that, and people were stuck with it. They had to pay whatever price was set on these animals, even the poor, who could only afford pigeons. Pigeons were normally like the equivalent of our money. You could buy two or three pigeons for the equivalent of a nickel in today's money. But if you had to buy one from those guys, you had to pay like five bucks for a single bird. And if you had to buy an animal and you had the wrong currency and needed to exchange it, there was a 25% exchange rate right off the top. So, see, this wasn't just government control. This was, this was blatant extortion. People were being cheated. People were being gouged. And the priests were lining their pockets. And all of this was being done in the name of God. All of this was being done in the name of the worship of God. All of this was being done in the temple of God. So you can picture this scene that Jesus walks into, right? Throngs of people, temple workmen, salesmen, charlatans, heckling, arguing. People are upset, spewing contempt, hatred for one another. Cages and cages full of animals everywhere. The whole temple probably stunk like a stockyard. The noise that all these animals made and the crowds made. In this place that was supposed to be, Jesus said called a house of prayer, quoting Isaiah 56. Now it was just this den of thieves, this, this degenerate cesspool where all this greed and corruption was going on because the priests of God were forcing the people to purchase God's favor in the temple. So it wasn't just extortion, it was false religion. It was disgusting, it was vile, it was blasphemous. And in walks Jesus. And immediately his eyes, his nose, his ears are assaulted with the sights and the smells and the sounds and the chaos and the corruption and the exploitation and the blasphemy that's going on here. Being perpetrated by these recognized, established authority figures. And they wielded that authority absolutely over the people, see? You had to do what they said. They had the authority to excommunicate you. If you were excommunicated, you couldn't work. You couldn't live. They had the authority to arrest you. They even, if you made, a, if you made trouble in the temple on the, on, the, on the Passover feast days, they had the authority to have you killed if you were disruptive enough. And Jesus was disruptive. And they did have him killed at the end of the week, didn't they? Which was his plan, of course, because he knew he had to die. And so isn't it amazing that not only does Jesus walk in and cause a ruckus and get himself arrested and sentenced to death, what Jesus actually does, if you picture this whole scene in your mind's eye, he walks in, this one guy, and completely overwhelms all of the authority of all of those people in the temple with his own sovereign authority, right? Picture it. I think like, I think we have the sort of old Sunday school flannel graph picture in our minds when we think about this scene, right? There's like, there's like three or four guys 
you know, sitting behind a, like one of those tables we use up in the fellowship hall, one of those Costco tables, those folding ones, you know, and there's a few sheep standing around and they've got like a bird cage on the table with a bird in it. And Jesus comes and knocks over their little table. And those guys, oh, they kind of freak out and run away. Right? That's not the, that's not the scene here. Right? It's not just a few hapless dudes behind a table running with their tails tucked. The, this place, this marketplace bazaar was massive. The Temple Mount that Herod built was 600 yards long. That's a third of a mile by 300 yards wide. It's 180,000 square yards, 37 acres, most of which was the court of the Gentiles. So there were, there were thousands, of, there were tens of thousands of people in there. Everywhere, changing money, selling these animals. Temple officials were all around, making sure everything was going the way it was supposed to. Temple guards all over the place, even Roman soldiers, making sure nobody disturbed the peace, right? They're everywhere. And Jesus, this one man, comes in, starts overturning tables left and right, throwing people off their stools, disrupting the whole system. And in doing so, Matthew says he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. You get that? All of them. He emptied the marketplace. Jesus doesn't give us, or Matthew doesn't give us details exactly of what all this looked like and how it went down, but you can imagine it. Jesus cast them all out. Sellers and buyers. Everyone. Thousands of people. The only ones left are are the blind and the lame and the beggars and the children. Everybody else is gone. Mark, even in his recounting of this, Mark seems to imply that people were in such a hurry to get out of there, so desperate to get out, that none of them took anything with them. They just literally dropped everything on the ground and left it all behind because Jesus told them to. What kind of man is this? There literally was nothing that all of the temple authorities and guards or Roman soldiers could do to stop it. He was one man. I think, I think you can add this to your list of verses that demonstrates the deity of Christ. Right? How did Jesus do that? How did he walk into that big crowd and just say, get out? And they all did. I don't know. Except that he's the son of God. And he wields all the power and authority of heaven. You remember at the end of the week when the Roman cohort come into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him? You remember what happened? This is a whole cohort of Roman soldiers. And John says, they asked, which one of you is Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus says, I am. Right? He didn't say, here I am or it's me. He said, I am, right? As in the divine covenant name of God. And when he said, I am, all of the Roman soldiers fell back and were knocked off their feet. Because Jesus spoke with the authority of the word of God. The power of his voice literally knocked him over. That's the same authority, right? Let there be light kind of authority. Lazarus come forth kind of authority. Like we saw last week, storm be still kind of authority. This is the authority Jesus wields. Jesus says here, get out. And everyone got out. There's nothing anyone could do about it. So 
this is not the meek, mild, approve of everyone, let it be pacifist Jesus that our modern liberal culture wants to make him out to be. This is the great I am himself. This is the most high and holy God. This is the second person of the eternal trinity. This is all the fullness of deity in bodily form. Staring at the wickedness and godlessness and blasphemy that's festering in the temple and seething with divine righteous indignation. This is the, this is the king who rode in humbly, mounted on a colt 24 hours earlier, but now he's in a sovereign rage, zealous to vindicate the honor and glory of God. So Jesus stood there with all the authority of the God who he is, and he purged the temple of God that day, Tuesday. And then, a few days later on Friday, he would make that same temple completely obsolete by humbling himself on the cross and making the one sacrifice that would put an absolute end to all future sacrifices. All. No more sacrifices, right? Once Jesus makes the once for all sacrifice, Hebrews chapter 9 says, Jesus did not come to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest used to do in the Old Testament, entering the holy place every year with blood not his own. For if Jesus came to do it repeatedly, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself once. One sacrifice. No other sacrifice ever needs to be made now that Jesus' blood has been shed. No animals ever need to be slaughtered in an earthly temple ever, ever again. And in fact, if they ever are, if a Jewish temple is ever rebuilt in Jerusalem and an altar is ever erected there and animals are ever killed on that altar again for the atonement of sin, it would be a high insult. It would be the worst offense that could ever be given to the crucified Jesus who rose from the dead because his death was enough, because his death was sufficient. The dying words of the Savior on Good Friday are, it is finished. And on Sunday, third day, the Father said, Amen. It is finished. It is enough. It is sufficient. And that is why Jesus was raised from the dead. Because his death, his one sacrifice, was supremely and eternally and infinitely sufficient. No other blood ever needs to be shed. No other sacrifice must ever be made. Because if it is, then it says to Jesus, yours was not enough. It was good, it was really good, but we need more. So I, I hope we all understand that, right? If anyone ever reinstates sacrifices for the atonement of sins on an altar in Jerusalem, then they are saying... They are saying to the beaten, scourged, thorn-crowned, pierced, crushed, crucified Lord of glory, you know what? More is needed than you. In John chapter 2, Jesus said to the Pharisees, 
Remember? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they thought that he meant this building, Herod's temple there in Jerusalem. But they were wrong, John says. Explicitly, Jesus was referring to himself. The temple that he was. And they did tear him down, and he was built back up three days later, right? In the resurrection. Think about this. In the book of Ezekiel, at the end of the book, throughout the book, God reveals that so much of the wickedness that brought the judgment of God onto Jerusalem, so much of the wickedness that provoked his wrath against the temple in Jerusalem was what was going on in the temple. It was the temple of God. They're supposed to be worshiping God, but it was full of pollution and defilement and idolatry and immorality. And so God, maybe you remember Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, God leaves the temple. God abandons the temple. He says, it's, I, can't, I can't brook all of this filth. And, he, and he take, the glory goes away. The Hebrew word Ichabod, the glory is gone. And and then the temple was left defenseless as the Babylonians came and destroyed it. Then they rebuilt it, of course, when they came back from exile. And in history, King Herod completely remodeled it to be this massive sort of spectacle that it was in Jesus' day. But the the glory of God, the, the indwelling presence of God never returned to the old temple. The Shekinah of God's presence never refilled the temple. And then it would be destroyed again, right? In 70 AD after Jesus' day. And now it's gone. There's no temple there. All that's there now is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Muslim Dome of the Rock, the third holiest site in the false religion of Islam is there where the temple of God once stood. Now, At the end of Ezekiel's prophecy, in the concluding chapters of Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel a vision of a future temple that God would build where the glory of God's presence would once again come in. And in the glory of His presence, a sacrifice would once once again be made for the atonement of sins, Ezekiel says specifically, for the atonement of sins. Well, what, where, where's this temple? It wasn't the one that the exiles rebuilt. It wasn't the one that Herod remodeled because there was no glory of God present in there again. And, and even the one that Herod remodeled that was standing in Jesus' day, that temple was nothing like the temple that God gave Ezekiel a vision of. Ezekiel's temple was utterly unique, right? It, had a, it, it featured a, a river of living water pouring out of it that got deeper and deeper the further it went and gave life to everything that it touched. And the temple that Ezekiel saw was built in such a way, its, its walls were so thick and so tall that it could never be, nobody could ever invade it. Nobody could ever breach those walls or climb over those walls. It could never be destroyed. It's an eternal temple. 
It had gates so strong no enemy could ever get in. It had an altar so pure and undefilable and a holy place so infinitely holy that no sin, no godlessness, no idolatry, no wickedness, no immorality, no pollution or corruption could ever stain this temple that Ezekiel saw or, 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 or mar the sacrifice made there. That's the picture God gave Ezekiel of a a temple where nothing could ever again interfere with the perfect work of atonement that God would accomplish for His people. What did Ezekiel see? Where is this temple? His name is Jesus. That's what, that's what Ezekiel saw in pictorial form, not an actual building where animal sacrifices will one day be resumed for the atonement of sin. May, may it never be that we would say to Jesus, we need, we need to sacrifice more animals to atone for sin in a building. If that's the kind of temple that Ezekiel saw, then it's blasphemy against Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Now what Ezekiel saw was a picture, but not of a building, it's a picture of Jesus. Jesus who said, if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days and did. He's the perfect temple. He's the temple that cannot be destroyed because they tried to destroy him and he was raised from the dead on the third day and he lives forevermore. Jesus is the temple that cannot be defiled. Jesus is the temple so pure, so holy that no imperfection could ever possibly mar the sacrifice that he made as the great high priest and the Lamb of God. Jesus is that temple and from him flows a river of living water because He is the water of life. He is the water. Didn't He say to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that if you drink of it, you will never thirst again. And that river of His mercy, that river of His life flows deeper and deeper into the corners of this world, saving people and redeeming people from every tribe and tongue and nation everywhere. And... Those people, you and I included, those eternal souls that are eternally refreshed and revived by the living waters of Jesus and the gospel, we're called by Peter in 2 Peter 2, we're called this, living stones. That's, that's Peter's words, living stones being built as a royal priesthood into the temple of God with Jesus himself, the precious cornerstone psalm 118 here's how paul says it ephesians chapter 2 he says that in jesus christ we are all together built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord and in him you also Gentiles, people from everywhere around the world, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus is the temple, and Jesus is the cornerstone of the great temple that we are as living stones built upon and built into, joined together as a holy temple in the Lord, the dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit, because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't Paul also say that? 1 Corinthians 3, he says to the whole church in Corinth, you, plural, all of them together, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 6, he says, talking to each individual, 
Did you not know that your body, you, each one of us, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? He's dwelling in you and you are his temple. That's what you are. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What price? The blood of Jesus bought you and renovated you. The, the rotten, run-down, sin-filled cesspool of a, of a crumbling house that you were, Jesus bought and flipped, renovated into a temple of the Holy Spirit. So glorify God with your body, Paul says. You don't get to do what you want with it anymore. You see how it all ties together? Jesus walked into the temple of Jerusalem, the actual building on Tuesday that was festering with wickedness, and he cleansed it. And then he made it completely obsolete. And then he was raised on Sunday as the new, perfect, everlasting temple. And in him, built on him, the cornerstone, we are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God. We are the place, our bodies, in our bodies, in our lives, in our church together. In his body, which is the church, where his spirit lives, where his glory is manifest. We are the temple. And so the worship must be pure. We mustn't be like the temple became in Ezekiel's day. We mustn't be like the temple became even in Jesus' day in Jerusalem. Glorify God in your body, Paul says, because your body, your life is not your own. You're his. You're not free to do whatever you want with your life. It's not your life. It's not my life. It's not my body anymore. I have to see myself. I have to define myself as God defines me as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so my life must be free and my life must be constantly being freed, being cleansed from all of the impurities, all of the idolatry, all of the ungodliness in heart, in mind, in word, in deed, all of the corruption that stains my life. Jesus has to constantly be cleaning house. There is no place in the place of the presence and glory and worship of God. There is no place for selfish greed. There is no place in the temple of God, your own body as an individual, and us as a body, his collective church. There is no place for bitterness among us. There is no place for malice, for dissension, for hatred, for division and disunity and lust and immorality. For we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and He will have none of that. And so we must yield to the Holy Spirit as He dwells in us and, and continues to wash us clean of all of that and bear the fruit of the Spirit within us. Isn't this what Paul talks about in Galatians 5? I love Galatians 5. It's such a, such a helpful diagnostic, isn't it? Paul says you're either walking according to the flesh or you're walking according to the Spirit. And you've got to walk according to the Spirit. And we go, well, how do I know if I'm walking according to the flesh or the Spirit? And he goes, well, it's easy, right? The, the works of the flesh are evident. If you've got this stuff going on in your mind or in your life, then you're walking according to the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions... 
envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, right? If these things are going on in your life, you're walking according to the flesh. If these are the kinds of impulses that are defining you and your relationships, you're walking according to the flesh. These things have no place in the temple of God. But, Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is love like Christ, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If these things are defining you like Jesus himself was defined as he walked this earth, then you are living and walking according to the Spirit who dwells within you and you are his temple. We have to yield to the work of the Spirit as he continues to wash us and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness and chase out all of the deeds of our flesh. Does the, does the sovereign authority of the voice of Jesus saying, get out, <laughs> hold sway in your life over the sins and temptations and fleshly impulses? And as he says, get out, what's, what's left? Who was left in the Jerusalem temple after Jesus said, get out here in Matthew 21? All the buyers and sellers left. And verse 14 says, he started healing the blind and the lame. And verse 15, so it was all the ones that needed him. It was all the ones that were utterly dependent on him. Verse 15 says that the little children were crying out to him. Hosanna to the son of David. Recognizing his lordship in the temple and worshiping him in their childlike faith. Is that you? Is that me? Utterly dependent on God, crying out, Abba Father, like a little child in recognition of our own weakness, our own inadequacy, our own insufficiency, and our own utter submissiveness to Him and His glory and authority. What a great picture, right? Of the cleansed temple of our lives when the corruption and impurity is being cast out and, and all of our pride is being crushed and we're left like the blind and the lame, just to reach out and say, I don't have anything. I need everything, and you are everything. Isn't that what Hosanna means? Help, and thank you for being all of the help. In simple and pure and implicit faith, like a child. God, I've got nothing, but in you, and only in you, I have everything. And I love verse 16, where the Pharisees, become indignant about these children crying out to Jesus. And they try, to, they try to shut up the little kids. They try to silence the children from praising Jesus. And Jesus simply says to them, well, what did you expect them to do? They're just doing what God made them to do. They're doing what little children do when they look up to their daddies. And so Jesus says to the self-righteous, self-willed Pharisees when they say, what do you think about all these kids making a ruckus here in the temple? He says, haven't you ever read Psalm 8? Remember, we, we read it responsibly today, right? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. This is how God works. He doesn't work through us when we're strong in ourselves. He doesn't work with us when we're super self-righteous 
and we've got it all going on in our own strength and according to our own wisdom. God works according to the things that this world thinks are weak and foolish in order to shame the things that this world thinks are strong and wise so that he can put his own strength and wisdom and glory on display. God works through these lame people, these blind people, these little children, these helpless ones to shame these self-righteous Pharisees. This is how God displays his great unfathomable glory in this world. By using the things that the world thinks are weak and foolish to accomplish his great work, right? Like a, like a baby born in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem. Like a carpenter from Nazareth riding into Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey. Like a king who conquers by dying, by sacrificing his own life on a cross. When God uses weak people to do great and mighty things, his glory shines because it is obviously his power on display and not ours. This is how God works. It's awfully encouraging to me when I'm weak and when I've blown it and when I absolutely have to depend on grace and mercy. And God says, my strength will be made perfect in you. My grace is sufficient for you. This is how it works. This is how we need to let him work in our lives. Not through us being strong, not through our ability, our accomplishments, our performance, all the things that the world values. When the pride and strength and wisdom of this world and of our flesh is crushed and vanquished and cast out, all that's left is the simple pure, humble faith that says, Hosanna, help me and thank you for being my help. This is what God has done by giving us new birth, right? For the sake of his praise. So that stripped of all our pride and any self-righteousness, any sense that our success in this world depends on something that we do, anything in us, stripped of all that, we can look to him who is the almighty holy God, who came and died for us while we were yet helpless. And we can cry out to him with childlike faith, like a nursing infant. God, I don't have anything. But in you alone, I have everything, right? Hosanna. Oh, Lord, help. Oh, give praise to the Lord, who is our helper, our savior, our redeemer, our life. Amen? Let's pray today that the Lord will do this, that he'll strip us of our foolish pride and our self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and render us humble and innocent and pure to worship him with the faith of a little child. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, even as we hear in this room, as we worship you and proclaim your word, Even as we hear in this room the precious voices of the little children crying out to their parents in need, Father, so we need to cry out to you, saying we can't do this, we don't have anything, you have everything, please help us and praise God for your steadfast love and faithfulness and goodness. And so, Father, we pray, Jesus, we pray, Holy Spirit, we pray, would you continue the work of cleansing us and casting out all of our pride 
humbling us and making us utterly dependent upon you that the praise of our lives might be to your glory and that we might live in a way that pleases and honors you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.